Jesus went up on the mountain and called to him those he himself wanted, and they came to him. Then he appointed twelve that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have power to heal sicknesses, to cast out demons. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Bonerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, Philip. Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon, the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. And they went into a house. In the third chapter of Mark, we have experienced the sweeping portrait of the servant of God, Jesus We've seen his courage in verses 1 through 6, his compassion in verses 7 through 12. And now our attention is drawn to the servant's call in verses 13 through 19 of this group of men who are going to constitute an inner circle. We're going to see the appointment and training of these men. They will follow Jesus. They will continue his work after his death and resurrection. They will testify to that resurrection. They will testify to the things that Jesus said and did. And again, they will constitute a core of witnesses to the resurrection. They will proclaim and offer a solid basis for faith in Jesus. They will, in effect, become ambassadors of Christ. And remember, an ambassador is a representative with a message. And their message will be the message of Jesus and the message of salvation. We're given a brief picture of their number in verses 13 and 14, their nature in verse 15. And then we're given a list of their names in verses 16, 17, 18, and 19. Twelve men are called. They're called to prepare and preach. They're called to cast out demons and heal. And their names have come down to us as Peter, James, John, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon, and Judas Iscariot. And in verse 13, it says, And he went up on the mountain and called to him, those he himself wanted, and they came to him. Now, in Luke's gospel, we're told that Jesus had spent the preceding night in prayer to his father. In Luke chapter 6, verse 12, it says, Now it came to pass in those days that he went up to a mountain to pray, and he continued all night in prayer. And so, oddly enough, the Bible doesn't say Jesus took out some scrolls and he began to get a list and he accepted resumes and then he began to put a list of strengths and weaknesses. That's not how it happened. He prays and he prays in a concentrated way and he prays in a deliberate and a specific way. And if you can imagine how important it is, Jesus spends the entire night in prayer. As a matter of fact, we're immediately struck by the fact that their commission and their selection doesn't come from themselves. It doesn't come from the people. It doesn't come from the church. The commission calls from Jesus himself. And by the way, the verb called stresses that Jesus acts in a sovereign way, according to his own interests. Later on, we're going to discover something. He says, you didn't pick me. I picked you. The Bible says that no one comes to the Father unless they're drawn by the Holy Spirit. There is a supernatural sense in which God selects and then he draws to himself. The passage also seems to indicate that the men came voluntarily to him. Richard Parker famously said, 
God doesn't call people who are qualified. He calls people who are willing and then he qualifies them. It's interesting to note that that's exactly the case. What makes these men specific and qualified? As a matter of fact, as we dive into verse 14, the servant designates and commissions his men. Look what it says. Then he appointed 12 that they might, and note this because it's important, that they might, number one, be with him. And that number two, that they might preach. We're not told why Jesus chose 12. Why not 10? Why not 11? Why not 13? Some have suggested that the number is significant. And we do discover in the Bible that 12 is the number of government. There are 12 tribes of Israel. When we read the New Testament and the book of Revelation, we discover that there are 12 foundations. We discover that there are 12 gates. We discover that the parameter of the city is 12 times 12, or it's 12,000 times 12,000 for 144,000. We also discover something interesting if we remember back in chapter 3, verse 7. It says, but Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea and a great multitude from the Galilee followed him and from Judea. One Bible teacher suggests that this withdrawal isn't just beating a hasty retreat from the synagogue. He has suggested that the formation of a new government is very specific as a matter of fact. Jesus is not welcome in the synagogue. He will go to the temple. He's not specifically excommunicated or put out that we can tell. But there's already the foundation of a new government that's being formed. And so that might be one of the reasons that there are 12. We also know later on in the New Testament that Jesus will commission, in addition to these 12, a group of 70. The word translated appointed in verse 14, is the Greek verb poeo. It actually means very simply to do or to make. The King James Version translates the word ordain. The NIV in the New American Standard and here in the New King James, it translates it appointed. The word probably was used to describe the appointment of a high-ranking official. It was also used for the appointment of an office or a position. I think that there's a reason why the old King James uses the term ordination because it usually carried with it the idea of an appointment that accompanies credentials. Typically, when a person is doing something under the guise or the auspices or the authority of someone in control, they give them credentials. Here, the picture is Jesus, the son of God, the king of the universe as the credentialing agent. It isn't the people. It isn't themselves. It isn't even the congregation. It is the Lord Jesus Christ who is doing the credentialing. Elizabeth Dole, who was married to Bob Dole, was quite a remarkable person in and of her of, in her own right. She was the head of, of the uh, I think it was the Salvation Army, but she, or maybe the Red Cross. But she uh, would later run for the United States Senate. She would write, quote, it is not what I do that matters, but what a sovereign God chooses to do through me. God does not want worldly success. He wants me. He wants my heart in submission to him. Life is not just a few years to spend on self-indulgence and career advancement. It is a privilege. It is a responsibility. It is a stewardship to be lived according to a much higher calling. God's calling. This alone gives true meaning to life. If you've ever sat in a lone circumstance, if you have ever found yourself in a circumstance where in the dark or in the light, you cried out to God and you asked the question, who am I? Why am I here? What is the purpose of my life? The answer is, here's why you were created to know him and to love him, to have friendship and fellowship with him. 
The Bible says that your sin has separated you from God and estranged you from God. The reason why it's such an important thing for you to have a right relationship with God is because that's the reason why you exist, to know him and to love him. And that's the reason why it's so so important for you to have a right relationship with God in Jesus. As a matter of fact, the appointment is made, if you look in the text, that they might be with him. In what sense? Companionship? I think that that's a minimum. Clearly, Jesus will call them to walk with him and talk with him and meet with him. But there's something way more important than just accompanying Jesus. The reality is that these men are, for the most part, insignificant and ordinary. Their significance and their impact comes in direct relationship to the fact that they have spent time with Jesus. I'm going to suggest to you that there is a sense in which he calls them to be with him. But I'm going to suggest to you that with him means something far more. It means so that they can observe Jesus and watch Jesus, observe his demeanor, his character, his words, his deeds, drinking in his words, understanding his instructions, laying hold of his message. That's exactly what you do when you read your Bible. You observe Jesus. You open up Matthew and Mark and Luke and John. You see how Jesus responds in any given situation under any given circumstance. The call to preach is preceded, note, by prayer and by preparation. Jesus thought it was important enough to pray. And Jesus also understood that it was important that there be a time of preparation and that preparation included walking with Jesus and watching Jesus. Almost every single thing that you do, there's going to be a period of preparation. But make no mistake about it. God's timing and God's preparation might astonish you. Maybe the most important thing that I've ever done in my life was two weeks after I got saved. I was 16 years old when I received Jesus as my Lord and my Savior, when I repented of my sin and believed the gospel. Two weeks after I got saved, my best friend came over to my house because that's what he normally did. He had a crush on my sister. We spent the vast majority of our time finding and smoking marijuana. That was what we did. But when I became a Christian, I decided... That finding marijuana and smoking marijuana was no longer going to be an important part of my life. And so when he came over and I told him, guess what? That's not who I am and that's not what I do anymore. And I started telling him about what God had done in my life and how Jesus had become a part of my life. He's fairly tall and he picked me up and he pushed me up against my own bedroom wall. And he says, don't you ever talk to me about Jesus. You're not even a good Catholic. And he was right. And I said to him, you're exactly right. I'm not a good anything, but I know that something has happened to me, that the emptiness has been filled and the darkness has become light and the guilt has become freedom and that Jesus Christ is the Lord. This is two weeks. I'm only a Christian for two weeks. By the way, my friend that summer would accept Christ as his savior. And in the 1980s, he would become the pastor of the fastest growing church in America, where the church went from a couple of hundred to a couple of thousand to over 8,000 people. And when I left, there were 14,000 people. Maybe the most important conversation that I ever had was with my best friend when I was only two weeks in the Lord. How long do you have to wait Hey, guess what? For some, it was just simply spending a day with Jesus. They watched Jesus. And look what it says, that they might 
preach. These men will become ambassadors of Jesus. That means a representative with a message. And by the way, in ancient days, people were sent to herald or proclaim a message on the behalf of kings or governors or rulers. They would send an advanced team out. They would prepare the roads. We sang it earlier. Prepare the way. Prepare the way of the Lord. And the, the, the heralds of old, they would say, guess what? The king is coming. And the king is coming with his army or with an entourage or the king is coming with a message. And their job wasn't to proclaim the king's message, but to proclaim the reality that the king was coming. And so here the word preach means that it's keruzo. It means to herald or proclaim, depending on the context, it can mean to publish or to evangelize. The message was to be Sent to each and every person. And we're given a clue to that message as we go all the way to the end of Mark's gospel. And if you look at chapter 16, verse 15, after Jesus has lived his life, died on the cross, rose from the dead. In chapter 16, verse 15, it says, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Same word, preach. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. Prayer, preparation, preaching. The preaching becomes the pivotal element in the ministry of the apostle. This may come as a shock and a surprise to you, but the preacher's message, his primary goal is to preach the gospel. It isn't to entertain the troops. I know that some of you think, when is he going to do a voice? When is he going to tell a joke? I love to do voices. And I don't mind telling jokes. As a matter of fact, Charles Haddon Spurgeon was once approached by a lady who says, Sir, you're entirely, you have too much levity in the pulpit. It was her way of saying you joke too much. And he said, woman, if you only knew. And people, if you only knew how much I resist the urge to entertain you. But the reality is, there's a far more important task at hand, and that's to remind you of what the text itself says, both about Jesus and about you. That's the point that is made. Paul talks about his own apostolic ministry of reconciliation in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18 and 19. He says, now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. And he's given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is that God was in Jesus reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Paul's message is that which is broken is now made whole. That which is empty can now be filled. That which is full of blame can now be exonerated. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. That is the good news. The good news is that the hopeless, helpless condition of humanity has been solved in the person of Jesus Christ. First Peter chapter four, verse 11. Later, Peter himself would write, do you have the gift of speaking? Then speak as though God himself were speaking through you. Do you have the gift of helping others? Do it with all your strength and energy that God supplies. Then everything you do will bring glory to God through Jesus. All glory and power to him forever and ever. There's a reason why you've been saved. It's so that you could extend the invitation to others. There's a reason why you've been set free so you can offer freedom to others. There might even be a reason where you find yourself in bondage or isolation or incarceration. Guess what? You've been made a prisoner so that you could be free for Jesus. That's what Paul writes. Everything that you are and everything that you do, you have been made that way so that you could honor him and love him. In his book, The Supremacy of God in Preaching, John Piper offers this outline for God honoring and Christ honoring preaching. He writes the goal of preaching. That's the glory of God. The ground of preaching. 
It's the cross of Jesus Christ, the gift of preaching. It's the power of the Holy Spirit. And he talks about the gravity and the gladness of preaching. Because guess what? God has chosen something as stupid and as foolish and as unremarkable as a person speaking and people listening to offer hope. Doesn't that shock you and surprise you? Because we live in a world where people love to be entertained and they hate to be bored. And all they would rather almost do anything than be bored. And so the preacher has an obligation to not make the message boring. In verse 15 it says, and to have power to heal sickness And to cast out demons. Now I want you to think about this for just a moment. Jesus has prayed. He extended the time of preparation. He calls them to preach. I want you to think this through. The men are chosen. And the very first thing we're impressed with is the gap between their natural abilities and what they're called to do. What is it that you've asked me to do? To follow me and be with me. And preach my message. We can't do that. I'll give you the power. I'll give you exactly what you need in order to accomplish all that I've asked you to do. The gap between their natural ability and what they're called to do can only be closed by God and Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. You're exactly right. If you're sitting there thinking, I can't do that. I can't say that. I can't be that. You're going to be shocked and surprised what God is able to do through you if you will let him. And remember here the appointment. The appointment is made so that they might, and read it for yourself, receive or have power to heal sickness and to cast out demons. Oddly enough, the point here isn't the healing of sickness or the casting out of demons, but it's power. And there are two words for power in the New Testament. The first is dunamis, which means intrinsic power or the ability to do something in and of yourself. Somebody might have worked out with weights or focused on personal strength their whole life. You've probably seen people who can take a phone book and rip it in half. That's intrinsic power. That's not the power that's here discussed. That's not the word here. The second word is exousia, which is delegated power, derived power, or a power or permission that's been given to you by somebody else. And that's the word that's used here. These men do not have supernatural power to heal sickness or to cast out demons. Their ability to heal and to cast out demons comes from the reality of God and the presence of Jesus in their life. If somebody tells you that they have the power to heal or cast out demons, they're lying to you. They don't have that ability. Just like only God has the ability to forgive sins, only God supernaturally has the ability to touch your body and heal it. And only God has the ability to flush your soul from demonic presence. That's the point. The servant of God isn't given supernatural power apart from God's Holy Spirit. And the servant of God isn't given power to use as the servant wills, but rather as God wills. And so the disciple were given authority to carry out healings and cast out demons. And we'll see that reiterated throughout the New Testament. Peter will later come to the gate beautiful and there will be a person who is sick. And the person will be begging and Peter will say, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have, give I to you in the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. And guess what? The guy got up. And then he tells everyone who's watching, I don't have any power to heal this guy. The, the, the reason why this person got up is because Jesus Christ is the living Lord of heaven. And Jesus is alive. And just like Jesus is alive and he can incorporate and, and create That which wasn't incorporated and created before, Jesus can make things different. And that's the idea. The disciples were given authority to carry out healing and casting out demons. And the servant prays and speaks the word. But the action 
spiritual healing and the power to expel the demons comes from God himself. And in 1 John chapter 3, we see that reiterated by John the Apostle. He will say in verse 8, he who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was made known or manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. We don't have any power, but Jesus has all power. The apostolic calling included privilege and power, intimacy with Jesus, preaching and teaching. And the subject of their preaching at first was to proclaim the advent of God's kingdom to the earth. It was second to know Jesus and to make Jesus known. And the apostolic calling included sympathy for the afflicted, prayer and supplication for the souls of men, but also sensitivity to the physical problems and the spiritual conditions of everyone around them. You might think, man, I wish I had supernatural power. I wish I could pray for someone and that person could recover. I wish that I could do this or I could do that. And guess what? Be careful what you pray. Because God could use you as an instrument. The reality is there's someone who needs a miracle in your life right at this very moment. For some of you, it might be a job. For some of you, it might mean a provision. For some of you, it might be a miracle of healing. For some of you, who knows what it is that you're struggling with. But whoever you are and whatever person is in your life, there's probably someone close to you who is empty and dark and lonely. And they wonder if anyone cares or if there's any hope for their marriage. If there's any hope for their circumstance. And all of a sudden you pray a simple prayer. Lord, will you use me to make a difference in this person's life? And a miracle happens. You see, we have something way better. We have the word of God and the word made flesh. We have God's unfailing promises. We have the life giving, life generating spirit of God and word of God. We have the promise of the spirit. We are called to pray and preach and plant and water, knowing that it's God who's going to give the increase. I think you understand something. You're saved so that you can extend the invitation of salvation to people. So that you can say to them, if God can save me, he can save you. If he's willing to forgive my sin, I'm going to suggest to you that he's willing to forgive your sin. You're saved. You are blessed. So that you can be a blessing. We're called so that we might be sent. As a matter of fact, later on in the text, Jesus is going to say, exactly as my father has sent me, that's exactly how I'm going to send you. How did the father send the son? With love? Yes. With power? Yes. With a message? Yes. With affection and confidence and a provision to do everything that would be necessary in order to accomplish what God had called him to do? The answer is yes. God will never, ever call you to do anything without providing for you and equipping you to do exactly what needs to be done. And so in verse 16, look what it says. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. Now, there are four lists of apostles given in the New Testament here in Mark's gospel. Acts chapter one, verse 13 Matthew's list in chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. Luke's list in chapter 6, verses 13 through 16. Now, I present an in-depth character analysis of each apostle in Matthew's gospel, chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. Luke's gospel, chapter 6, verses 13 through 16. In both of those instances, I spent a month going over each and every list. And so if you're interested, you can... Go get the tape or the CD. We don't use tape anymore. (laughs) You can get the CD or you can go online and you can download it. But in keeping with Mark's brevity and drama, I want to give you the brief portrait. The in-depth analysis is available if you want it. The name Peter is the Greek word patros. In Aramaic, it is kepha or kepha. Now, it means rock. And you should laugh the moment you hear 
His nickname. Italian people are famous for nicknames. I once asked my dad why all of his colorful friends have such interesting names. You know, why is that guy called Fat Tony Bones? My dad would go, look at him. Look at him. I'd say, why do you call that guy CC? Because he drinks Canadian club like a fish. Why do you call that guy Joe the Plumber? I can't tell you. <laughs> okay, Dad. Why do you call this guy The Rock? Because he's sound? Because he's strong? By the way, if I asked you just very quickly in your mind to picture Peter in your mind and what you know of Peter from the New Testament and then on one side put a list of strengths and then on the other side put a list of weaknesses, what would you write? It would probably be a pretty significant list. On the strength side, we might put self-sacrificing. We learned earlier in Mark chapter 1, verses 16 through 18, he's willing to give it all up to follow Jesus. In Matthew chapter 8, verse 14, we see the same thing. Peter seems to have this predisposition towards spiritual things. There's certain winsome things that we love about him. A childlike faith, kind-hearted, trusting, courageous. But we also understand something else, that sometimes his courageousness can turn to impulsivity. Sometimes Peter struggled with pride and presumption. Why else would he say to Jesus, heaven forbid that you should go to Jerusalem and be arrested and killed? Remember, that statement takes place right before that when Jesus asked, who do people say that I am? And some guessed that he was like the apostle or like, like one of the prophets or like Moses or like Jeremiah. And he said, who do you say that I am? And he, Peter says, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And remember, Jesus said, hey, flesh and blood hasn't revealed that to you, but my father, which is in heaven. And you can just see the pride begin to swell up in Peter's. Oh, yeah. Hearing from God, that would be me. And then Jesus begins to explain what's going to happen to him. And Peter goes, I'm going to step up to the plate again. No, Jesus. And then Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Wait, my name's Peter. You call me the rock. You... Satan's not my name. But when you're cooperating with Satan and when you're acting in a way that's consistent with Satan, how can I tell the difference when you want exactly what he wants and you say exactly what he says? Peter is slow and self-seeking and sometimes disbelieving and sometimes overbearing and sometimes weak and sometimes cowardly. Oh, let's put him at the top of the list. I think you understand something. That Peter will be changed and the change will be dramatic and the change will be substantial and the change will be permanent. Oh, by the way. After the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus into heaven, did Peter never make a mistake ever again? No. As a matter of fact, we learn in the book of Galatians that Paul the Apostle calls him on the carpet for hypocrisy and legalism. Well, who else is on the list? James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Bonerges, that is, sons of thunder. So here we have James and John, brothers, the sons of Zebedee. And by the way, in the list, these guys are prosperous fishermen. If anyone could be placed in the company of successful, these two boys probably are. They're prosperous fishermen in the Galilee. But even as a prosperous fisherman in the Galilee, it would be like saying, I have a successful hardware store in Lyman, Colorado. Who cares? It's not New York, it's not Los Angeles, it's not Phoenix. So what? You have some success in some small town. There seems to be some evidence that James and John had perhaps a casual friendship with the high priest. It could very well be that their business blossomed to the point that they were providing fish for some of the more prominent citizens of, of Capernaum and around the lake in Tiberias. The mother of James and John was a woman named Salome, who some Bible teachers believe to be a close relative, perhaps even the sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus. If that's the case, these boys would have been cousins or close relatives to Jesus. Peter has Mark 
called him by Jesus's nickname, Bonerges. It's Aramaic. In the Hebrew and the Greek, it's sons of thunder. Now, why do you suppose that is? Do you think Jesus is going, look, after I die and rise from the dead, this is going to be your stage name, sons of thunder. I don't think that that's the reason why. I don't think it's because the domain name of stupid idiots had already been taken. I'm going to suggest to you that they were called the sons of thunder because of a particular incident in their life. Do you remember when they're walking down the road and, and, and they're preaching the gospel and they're, they're giving out the message and some people are reluctant to hear the message and James and John say to Jesus, I have a great idea, Lord. Let's call fire down from heaven like Elijah did and let's just smoke them like a really bad Cuban cigar. Let's just toast them. Let's just make them regret that they ever had anything to do with us. And remember Jesus' response. Dudes, you have no idea what you're talking about. John MacArthur suggests the name is characterized by their intense, outspoken personalities. If you met James and John, the first thing out of your mouth would be, relax. Just relax. Take a little chill pill. Calm down for just a little minute. We see elements of pride and ambition. Remember, it's their mother, Salome, who go to Jesus and say, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, could my boys, one on the left and one on the right, spend all of eternity on the left and the right hand side? And remember what he said? He said, do you understand what you're asking? Are they willing to do what I'm going to do? Well, yeah. No, you, you have no idea what you're talking about. And by the way, those positions have already been assigned by my father in heaven. But the stormy temper will turn to burning zeal and ambition. Jesus will change them. They will become two of the greatest human witnesses for the glory of God and the gospel of Jesus. And James, after the resurrection of Jesus and his ascension into heaven, will be arrested and imprisoned along with Peter. Peter will be released by an angel supernaturally and James will be taken out and he will be beheaded. He'll be the first one to enter into heaven. And his little brother, John, will be the last one to go. One brother will go to heaven. One will be the last living apostle. In verse 18, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon, the Canaanite. In the chronology, the discipleship of Andrew goes first. In John chapter 1, Andrew is walking and following John the Baptist along with the author, John. They're following. They hear John the Baptist preach a message. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. They drop what they're doing. They leave their apprenticeship and discipleship with John the Baptist. And they begin to follow Jesus. Andrew, of course, brings his older brother Peter to the Lord. By the way, we never find a single sermon. We never hear of a single book. We never even hear about Andrew in the Bible, except for a few times when he's bringing people to Jesus. Andrew's willing to be number two in order for Jesus to be number one. When we're introduced to Philip in the first chapter of John, he's not even looking for Jesus. John is clueless. He's just walking around, minding his own business. But Jesus finds him. Some have suggested that, that he was slow and unresponsive. He almost missed out at his chance at discipleship and apostleship. apostleship. He didn't miss the opportunity, though, when, when he was talking with Jesus about crowds that had gathered. And he says, Jesus, it's time to send these people away. There's nothing to eat. And there's no, there's no Chick-fil-A here. There's no In-N-Out Burger. There's no place for these people to get food. And remember what Jesus said, you feed them. Philip's response, that's not possible. You just asked me to do something that can't be done. Well, there is this kid here. He does have a loser of a lunch, a couple of fish, some really stale pieces of bread. 
But what is that among so many? And you know the story. How he places it in the Savior's hand and much or a little becomes a whole lot once you give it to Jesus. And yes, Philip didn't catch on quickly. But there came a point in his life where he understood the identity, the mission and the destiny of Jesus. Bartholomew, by the way, is also called Nathaniel. We're given a brief introduction to him in John's gospel. You remember, this is the guy who was under the fig tree. And remember, this is the guy that Jesus says, hey, look, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no guile or deceit. And he says, how do you know me? And remember, he says, when you were under the fig tree, before Philip called you, I saw you. You're the Messiah. You're the king of heaven. You're the promised one. Just because I told you that, hey, you're going to see so much more. You're going to see heaven open up wide. You're going to see angels ascending and descending. You're going to see a ladder come down from heaven. You're going to see the questions that you are asking answered. That there's a real God who really cares. Matthew called Levi. Remember, we know he's the tax collector, the traitor, the Roman sympathizer. This is the guy who said, I don't care about you and I don't care about religion and I don't care about religious things. Religious things bore me. I want to make money and lots of it. Well, what are you willing to do to make money? Whatever it takes. Who are you willing to abandon? Everyone. Who are you willing to alienate and isolate from? Everyone that I care about. Oh, okay, let's pick this guy to be on the ministry team. Thomas, called Didymus, it also means twin. He's presented in the, in the Gospels of, the, of a man of great courage and loyalty, even though most people remember him as the doubter. Why? Well, did he struggle with skepticism and doubt? Well, yeah. Jesus will die. And you'll remember on Easter morning what he did. There's an empty tomb. There's the witness of the women. There's the witness of the apostles. There's all of this stuff. He goes, I'm in Jerusalem. The tomb is empty. I've heard what the women had to say. I've heard what Peter and, and John has had to say. And do you believe it? No, I don't. You'll remember when everybody else saw him rise from the dead and they said, Thomas, Thomas, it's true. It's true. He's back from the dead. And Thomas said, unless I stick my finger in his wounds and my hand in his side, I simply won't believe you. Why, Thomas? Because guess what? In the real world, loser, dead people don't come back to life. But you walked with him. Yeah. You saw what he did. Yeah. You heard what he said. Yeah. But I was wrong. Dead people don't come back to life. And then Jesus shows up. He shows up. And he says, don't be like that. Stop being an unbeliever and start believing. Go ahead and stick your hand in my side. Go ahead and stick... Your finger in the nail print. If that's what it takes for you to believe, do it. And you'll remember his response. My Lord and my God. And Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. And look what else it says. James, the son of Alphaeus. He is probably either the his father was named Alphaeus or Clopos. John 19.25. His mother was one of the women who stood with Jesus' mother and the other women at the cross. This, his mom was also one of the women who visited Jesus' tomb and, along with Mary Magdalene, according to John 19.25. He had a brother named Joseph. He was also a, who was also a follower of Jesus. And then there's Thaddeus, Labius, and this apostle is the same as Judas, the son of James, in the other list. Thaddeus means breast or one who praises or the man with the big heart. That's probably the best translation. If you're from the South, you probably heard the expression. That guy has a heart as big as Texas. That's what this means. What happens when Jesus finds someone who's generous and selfless and sacrificial you probably heard about people who will give you the shirt off their back. What does Jesus do when he finds someone generous? He makes them even more generous. I think that that's why he's calling them that. This is the guy with the big heart. 
And of course, Simon, the Canaanite is also Simon, the zealot. Simon was a card carrying member of a fanatical organization. The core principles of this group included a fanatical hatred for the Romans, a belief that God alone was the true ruler and redeemer of Israel. They preached and led revolutions against the despicable foreign occupiers. Simon was called a zealot because he lived to kill and dislodge the people who were occupying his country. And guess what? When he meets Jesus, he becomes a different kind of a fanatic. He becomes a Jesus freak. He's fanatical now for Christ. And by the way, throughout the New Testament, you, you'll always hear him called the fanatic or the zealot. But now he's going to be wholly devoted to Jesus and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. And they went into a house. Last on the list, Judas. I want you to note something. Every person on the list was changed by Jesus. Even Judas. But Judas's change was external and superficial. Judas would leave what he was doing and he would follow Jesus for a season and he would watch him and he would wait for him and he would minister to him and he would provide for him and he would be in charge of the money. And you know why he's in charge of the money It's because he's the most trusted person in the group. He's changed. But it's a temporary change. It's a superficial change. It's not an honest change. Dr. A.B. Bruce offers the suggestion, well, why did Jesus choose these guys? <laughs> it could be that this is all that Jesus had to work with. But I'm going to suggest to you that it's not brilliance. It's not wealth. It's not talent. It's not charisma. It's not charm, because if it was intellect or charm or imagination or creativity, anyone could say, you know, Jesus really wasn't the Lord. Listen to how these smart, imaginative and creative people have created a religion out of whole cloth. No, these guys weren't called to be theologians. They weren't called to be scholars. They're poor, ordinary men. They're called to be witnesses. To witness Jesus, the facts of Jesus, the deeds of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus. Almost all of them left nothing memorable. The list is meant to inspire us that what God can do with ordinary people, with weak and base and despised people, with people, if I may be so bold, like you. You know, Martin Luther was a brilliant man, but he was the son of a poor miner. But God poured his strength into him. Billy Graham was the son of a poor farmer from South Carolina. And if you were to ask Billy Graham, why do kings and heads of state and people in power want to call you friend? He would say, I have no idea. Because all I do is just simply testify to the reality that there's a God who loves you and that Jesus Christ is willing to save you. John Bunyan was a tinker. You may not even know what a tinker is. But a tinker was a person in the ancient world who went from town to town and village to village. And it was his job to fix the pots and pans that had broken. But God poured his spirit inside of his heart and gave John Bunyan a dream. And that dream became a book while he was in prison called... Pilgrim's progress. The night before Jesus died with a full heart and sincere and affection, he said about these guys, you are they which have continued with me during the time of my test. By the way, like their Lord, each one of them would die except for John. Matthew would suffer martyrdom by being slain with a sword in the distant city of, of, uh, in Ethiopia. Mark would go to North Africa in the port city of Alexandria where he would be tied and then he would be dragged behind a chariot until all that remained of him was his 
carcass that had been drugged through the city streets. Luke would be hung on an olive tree in Greece. John would be placed into a pot of boiling oil. He would escape death, go to Patmos, write the book of Revelation, and then go to Ephesus where he would spend out his life. Peter would be crucified in Rome, according to church tradition, upside down. James the Greater would be beheaded in Jerusalem by Herod. James the Less would be thrown from the pinnacle in the temple. He would somehow survived, they would take a fuller's club and they would smash his brains in at the bottom of the of the ravine. Bartholomew would be flayed alive. Andrew would be hung on an X-shaped cross and there he would witness to his captors about the reality of Jesus and then they killed him. How do you explain that? Because he called them And he prepared them. And he equipped them. And when he calls you, he'll prepare you and equip you. G.E. Wagner wrote an interesting statement. He said, if God can hang the stars on high, can paint the clouds that drift on by, can send the sun across the sky, What could he do through you? If he can send a storm through space and dot with trees the mountain space, if he the sparrow's way can trace, what could he do through you? If God can do such little things as count our hairs or birds that sing, control the universe that swings, what could he do through you? That's the question. But only you have the answer. But the answer will only come if you're willing to ask the question. Lord, what are you willing to do for me? Guess what? He'll call you. He'll equip you. He'll prepare you. He will never, ever ask you to do anything without making a provision for you. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for each and every person. Lord, when we think about Thomas being run through the body with a lance in Chennai in India, when we think of Jude being shot to death with arrows, when we think of Matthias being first stoned and then beheaded, we understand that there was a very difficult road ahead for each of these men. And that had Jesus explained to them how things may have been different. But Lord, we know that Jesus did explain. Take up your cross Follow me. Where are you going? I'm going to a place where I'm going to die. And then I'm going to come back to life. Lord, you wouldn't ask me to go to a place where I have to die. Heavenly Father, we know that if Jesus asks us to go to a place where we have to die, that he'll bring us back to life. What a glorious promise that you're calling us, Lord, to know you and to love you and to serve you. Heavenly Father, we ask the question, what will you do through us? In Jesus' name.